Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, well-known passage of Scripture. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, several weeks, um, and this morning is just the first week of our study in Hebrews 11. We're going to be reading uh, Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 3, because it is God's Word. I would ask you to stand together with me uh, as we read. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you were with us last week, you remember um, at the end of chapter uh, 10 there, we read in verse uh, 38, it begins with the words, but, uh, my right, but my righteous one will live by faith. Um, he has been talking about the need to have our faith in Christ and, and in Him alone uh, throughout this book. We've been seeing these uh, superiority of Christ, and therefore we ought to put our faith in Him. And so now we come to chapter 11 where we, uh, we, we're going to read about all these great saints who put their trust in God and had faith in God. And he talks about all the tremendous things that were accomplished by uh, faith. But the question we must have before we begin is, what is faith? We need to understand exactly what faith is before we uh, go on uh, where, with the Lord uh, requiring us to live by faith. What is faith? Um, there's a story about a little boy in Sunday school. A Sunday school teacher asked her, what is faith? And the little boy raised his hand, so she said, Johnny, okay, you tell us, what, what is faith? And he says, well, faith is believing something that you know isn't true. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if that's not what a lot of Christians think as we look at the Christian life, as we look at Scripture, and we see all these things happening in Scripture, and we're told to uh, live by faith. Is, is that what... Uh, faith is. I wonder if many Christians believe that. Um, when we talk about living by faith, I, I've heard people say, well, you just got to have faith. I had a guy in my uh, study uh, several years ago, and I was counseling my, him on some things, and uh, he said, well, you know, I, I know you just got to have faith. And uh, that was kind of odd to me that it would come out at that point. And I said, well, faith in what? And he, he goes, well, you just got to have faith. Well, faith in what? You know, it's, it, it, there, there's, faith has to have an object, right? Faith in faith is not faith at all. Faith in faith is more like the little boy's definition, right? Faith has to have an object, and our faith has an object. The author of Hebrews has been telling us about it throughout. Keep our eyes on Jesus, right? The object of our faith. And so, just as we've been reminded in Hebrews, several places in Hebrews 10.38, that my righteous one will live by faith. We need to now elaborate on faith, as the author of Hebrews does in chapter 11. He elaborates on faith. We need to, this morning, as we uh, kind of figure out what is faith. And so, let's look at it. You have your bull, uh, outline in your bulletin, two main points. 
We have uh, what is the nature of faith and the activity of faith. And so first of all, the nature of faith. Well, we see what is the nature of faith uh, right off the bat in verse 11. It's being sure of what we hope for. Being sure of. Uh, the ESV is uh, having assurance of. It is something that is real, something that is solid, even though it is something that is unseen. We're, we're sure of it. We're certain of it. And then he goes on, sure of uh, being sure of what we hope for. If you're hoping for something, it means you don't possess it just yet, as Paul has told us uh, already. Uh, why would we hope for something that we already have? It's something that is still future. It's something we don't possess yet, and yet we're hoping for it. What do we hope for? Well, we uh, faith is hoping for a better life that is yet to come. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning verse 18. He says, I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul's going through sufferings. The, those who the author of Hebrews is writing to, they're going through sufferings, and he's saying, you know what? We have hope of a, of a much brighter future, a much better future. He says, I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The, cre the creation waits eagerly, uh, waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought uh, into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Um, we're hoping for a better world. We're hoping for uh, a much brighter future. We're hoping for a city that is not just right here and right now. We're looking for a bright and blessed future. Faith is being sure of this. It is more than a wishful thinking. Uh, some talked about the Christian faith as being a blind leap. Is that what we're saying? Just blindly leap into faith and trust and something that you know is not true. That's, that's not it at all. He says we're certain of what we do not see. Certain of it. There's a certainty. You know that it's true. I know that you've, you've often heard the uh, saying, uh, seeing is believing, right? Tim Keller, uh, but we're, we're being certain of something. We're believing something that we don't see. Tim Keller tells him, wonderful story of when he had a lipoma that had to be a little growth on his body and his doctor saw it and he says, we got, we got to remove it. It's nothing too serious right now and uh, the surgery is not a big thing. You can come in, we can do it in my office and we just do it with local anesthesia. Um, it's no big deal. And so they schedule a day, and he, he said he, he left there being confident. The doctor's telling him about how this is not a big deal. We just need to get it out before it becomes a big deal. He goes and he talks to other friends who have had it done. They go, oh, no, it's nothing too serious. It's no big deal. It's a piece of cake. You go in, you're, you're there for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, and you're out and you're back home, right? It's nothing to worry about. Don't, don't worry about it. And so he said he went in. Uh, to the office that day to have the surgery done, full of confidence that it was going to be no big deal. But when he got into the doctor's office, not the waiting area, but into the office itself where, where the doctor was going to do the surgery, he said he saw the little table there, and the table had shots, and they had knives, 
He said he, he saw the table over there with the straps on it. And he's going, what are those straps for? What was, what was faith, what was sight doing? Sight was removing his faith, right? Sight was going against reality here. This is no big deal. But what he saw made him think, this is a big deal. It's happening to me, right? Sight was against uh, knowledge right there. Sight was against the truth. We see it in the Gospels where the disciples are out in the boat middle of the sea and Jesus is up on the mountain and he sees them down there. A big storm comes up and they think they're all going to die. So Jesus goes walking out to them on the water. right? And they see him and they think it's a ghost and they scream out and Jesus says, no, it's me. And Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, then let me walk out to you. Jesus says, come on. Peter gets out and starts walking. He must have thought, this is great, walking on water. This has never happened before. But what did he do? He began to look away from Jesus. And the sights of the sea being all churned up and the water splashing, the wind in his face and everything. What did he see? Made him doubt that he could do what he was actually doing. What's the most logical thing? If you see Jesus walking on the water and he tells you to come out and you start walking on the water, what's the logic? As long as I trust in Jesus, I can walk on water. But no, that's not what he did. He looked and he saw things that would begin to cause him to question. And that's when he, that's when he began to sink. Faith is believing. It's not believing irrationally. It's believing very much rationally. It's not simply believing what we can perceive through our senses, though. We think if we can't see it, we can't hear it, we can't touch it, taste it, or smell it, then it doesn't exist. But that's just not true. It's just not true. We, we see a lot of things in our world that we can't perceive through our senses, that we can't see or hear or touch or taste or smell. I'll give you a few examples. Love. What's love look like? Well, you can say, well, when you love somebody, you do this, you do Well, that's, that's an expression of love. But what does love itself, the, the concept of love, what does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? How do you hear it? Love is a reality, but it's not perceived through the senses. What about laws? Laws that govern the universe, absolute laws govern the universe. What do they look like? What do they taste like? What do they smell like? How do they feel? Right? You can't perceive those through the senses, but they are there. Now, we live in a day and age, especially in postmodernism, which is the uh, like the worldview that is most uh, prominent right now, I guess, in the academies and stuff. It would say that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Do you realize how much of a problem that statement is? Hopefully you do. You can't make that statement if there is no such thing as absolute truth because you're saying it's absolutely true that there's no absolute truth. You're denying yourself by that statement. It's a self-denying statement. It doesn't make any sense. Everybody knows that there truly are absolute laws that rule the universe and absolute truths. You can't see them. You can't taste them. What about the laws of logic? Uh, laws of logic 
that we use in arguing with one another or discussing with one another, wanting to try to persuade someone to our position. No matter who you're arguing with, a postmodern uh, philosophy of life or whatever, they're still going to want to use the laws of logic on you. What, what do they look like? What do they smell like? What do they taste like? How do they feel? They're there. Laws of logic such as, it's called the law of non-contradiction, uh, which states that a man can't be both a man and not a man at the same time in the same relationship. A woman can't be both a woman and not a woman at the same time in the same relationship. It's used in uh, philosophical terms as X can't be X and non-X at the same time in the same relationship. It's just the law of logic. That would be a contradiction. You're both a man and not a man at the same time in the same relationship. It doesn't work that way. What's that law? Well, it's not something that we can see or feel, but it's real. We know it's there. Everybody knows it's there. What about creation? Um, what about creation being a created by a, a creator that we can't see? Um, it, he uses in verse 3 that as an illustration. By faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen is not made out of what is visible. You understand that everybody's got to know that. In science, in a... In a our world of science, it is it's impossible for, in a cause and effect world, which is basically what we do with science, cause and effect. Uh, if you're testing a, a theory that you have, it's cause and effect. If I put this liquid into this liquid, it's going to do this every time, right? And so for everything that we see, there has to be a cause. Well, it's impossible in a cause and effect world for matter to be eternal. You do understand that, right? Matter cannot be eternal if we live in a cause and effect world. Everything has to have had a cause. What is that first cause? Right? Well, we would say that first cause is God. We can't see Him, smell Him, touch Him, taste Him, feel Him, right? He is real, and He's created the world, and as we look at it, we say, this didn't all start by accident. It started by someone that we don't see. But we know that he's real. You can't look at creation. It's, it's just logical to understand that all the purpose and meaning that we have in life have to have come from somewhere else. And so uh, when we say that uh, faith is being sure of what we hope for, how can we hope for something that we don't see? Is it logical to hope for something we can't see? Well, I would say yes, absolutely. It's logical to have faith and trust in God that he's going to fulfill his promises to us. If God has promised it, has he ever broken his promise anywhere? No. So what about all the evil and terrible stuff's going on in my life? Do you ever read scripture where it tells us over and over again that we will suffer as Christians? Absolutely. If you're a Christian, you're going to suffer for Christ's sake. God has told us that, but he's told us that there's a bright and glorious future for us. People in here, uh, the, the, the author he was writing to, they're undergoing a great deal of persecution. They must have been thinking, what I'm seeing doesn't, doesn't really look like the bright future that we're talking about. But he says, you keep believing in it. You keep trusting that it is going to happen. 
You, you, you be sure of what you're hoping for because God has promised it. God has promised us. It's been a long time since Christ ascended into heaven. He's promised us he will come back. He will come back. He has promised us that as we see all the injustice in the world today and we think, that where, where are we ever going to find justice? He's promised us that justice will be done. And he's promised us that if we're putting our faith and trust in him, we will dwell with him forever. Um, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we will always be together with God. This is the logical way to look at things. This is basing our faith not on something that seems so illogical. We're not putting our minds apart. Um, again, Tim Keller says you can't have faith without thinking. Remember as you go through the book of Acts and you see Paul going to all the different cities, especially he goes to Athens. What's he doing? He's reasoning with them. He's, he's appealing to their minds. You think about this. You think about fact that God exists and that he has loved us so much that even in our sins, the only way he can save us is to send his own son to die for us and then he rose, he, he rose again to new life. Paul was always appealing to people's thinking. And we too, as we, as we trust in the Lord it's not, and put our faith in him, it's not setting our minds aside, it is using our minds engaging our minds in the truth of God's word. Tim Keller talks about the difference between a, uh, a Christian worldview and any other worldview apart from Christianity. He says, that has too many things that I have to take without thinking. I have to accept without thinking. The only truth uh, is the Christian faith. And while there might be problems with it, it's far less than any other worldview. Well, we go on. The nature of faith, the nature of faith is, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's not setting our minds apart, but it is truly accepting and, and thinking and uh, thinking deeply about the things of the world. And we come out with Christianity every time. Secondly, I want you to notice not only the nature of faith, but notice the activity of faith. We see it. In verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. We're going to go as we get in verse 4 and beyond. He goes on to this list from, from Abel um, on, you know, throughout Scripture of so many people who had, had faith in God and trusted in God and they were, they were living by that faith. He says they were commended for it because they were living by it. The Reformers uh, talked about three aspects of true saving faith. The first aspect of true saving faith is understanding, understanding the truth, looking at it and saying, okay, uh, when I look at Christianity, I know what you're saying. I know that you're saying man is lost in sin and without hope in himself. And that the only way for God to save us is to send his son to die for us in our place and then raise him again from the dead and incorporating us in Christ. I understand that that's what you're saying. right? I understand the teaching of Christianity. That's the first step, first aspect of, of saving faith. The second one is accepting it. Where you say, yes, I know, I see 
that what you're saying is that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself, but that only God can save me, and He saved me through sending His Son and His work. That's the only thing that will save me. I understand that that's what you're saying, and I accept it as the truth. I know that's true. It's got to be true. Well, if you do that much, uh, and if that's all you're doing, you haven't quite made true faith yet. James tells us, you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Do you think the demons understand the reason God sent his son to the earth? I think they very much do. So they understand and they have accepted it as the truth, and yet they're missing the third part of true saving faith, and that is trusting. When you trust him. I can come and look at this chair. Somebody must have designed that for a human to sit in. Right? So first thing, I'm understanding what the design and the craftsmanship of this is all about. And then the second thing is where I would say, yeah, that's what that's for, is for somebody to sit in. I believe that it would hold me up. Right? So the second aspect, I do believe that's what it's for, and it would hold me up. But I'm missing the third part, and that's trusting. Trusting is where I go. Oh, let me see. Yeah. It holds Danny and it holds me. It works. It's good. It, it will hold me up. That's what true saving faith is. It's not only understanding the truth that is being expressed and accepting the truth that is expressed, but it is trusting and applying the truth that has been expressed. As he goes on, and he lists all these great uh, heroes of the faith, that's what they're doing. They're trusting. They're putting their trust. They say, God, I know this is, this is who you are, and this is what you're telling me to do. I accept that you are God, and you're telling me to do it, and I am trusting that you're going to bring about a good end. And they all obey, and they obey by trusting and showing it by, by trusting Chapter 11 is just full of these illustrations of those who acted on faith when, they, when God promised they trusted. It's interesting that um, we see in verse 13 here, we'll get to it in a, in a couple weeks here, but he says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They died still believing that God was going to fulfill his promise. They saw it was still in the future. True faith is believing Romans 8, 28, that we know that God is working all things together for good to those who trust him. They're called according to his purposes. Do you, do you trust that? Do you believe that? Do you, or is that always the attitude of your heart and saying, I, I see what I'm going through? Or are you saying, God, if you really love me, you wouldn't be putting me through this? And true faith is saying, God, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't understand this. I can't clearly see why you're doing this, but I'm trusting that you know best. I'm trusting that you are working it together for good and I'm going to continue to be obedient. I'm going to continue to worship and adore you for you're worthy of it. Um, William Barclay in, in his little commentary said uh, he, he's a 
taking ideas from a guy named Moffat, but he's, anyway, he says that uh, this is the hope in which Christians uh, operate. Uh, first of all, it is belief in God against the world. If we follow the world's standards, we may have ease and comfort and prosperity. If we follow God's standards, we may well have pain and loss and unpopularity. It is a conviction of the Christian that it is better to suffer with God than to prosper with the world. In the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are confronted with the choice of obeying Nebuchadnezzar and worshiping the king's image or obeying God and entering the fiery furnace. Without hesitation, they chose God. When Bunyan uh, was due for a trial, he said, With God's comfort in my poor soul, before I went down to the justices, I begged to God that if I might do more good by being at liberty than in prison, then I might be set at liberty. But if not, his will be done. The Christian attitude is that in terms of eternity, it's better to stake everything on God than to trust the rewards of the world. That's the true activity of faith. True activity of faith is saying, I trust in God and in his provisions more than I trust in the, in the world and his provisions. I choose to stand with God and his people rather than the world and all the riches that it seems to be able to provide here. The activity of faith is truly putting our complete trust in God and his promises for us. And so faith, we see, is trusting that the God who created all things, well, he has it under control. It might look chaotic, but he's got it under control. And therefore, we can trust his promises to us. And because we can trust his promises to us, we can therefore live in obedience to him and doing what he's called us to do, even though it might not seem uh, the most easy, the most comforting. We can still trust in him and live our lives in obedience to him, trusting him putting our faith in him, living by faith, as he's going to commend so many to do. So that maybe by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, and you think, can my name be added to that list? I, I believe that the canon is closed, okay? So don't get me wrong here, but I believe that, you know, if there's one chapter that maybe we could go on in Scripture, uh, this might be it. He even says, you know, I can't, I can't name all of those who put their faith in God and trusted in Him and, and went through terrible ordeals, but they were, had their faith in God. Can your name be added? You say, I'm trusting in Him. I'm putting my faith in Him completely and totally. I know that the world says this is ludicrous, but I've searched it out and I know that it is not ludicrous to trust in the one who has promised and has never once broken a promise. It's not ludicrous to trust the one who created it all to be able to sustain it all. And since he's done that, he can, he can tell me what to do. And if I do it, it's going to work out right. Well, I hope by the time we get to the end of this chapter, you'll be able to say, by God's help, I'm not perfect in it yet, but I am trusting 
and the promises that he's given me. And in my trusting, I will be obedient to him. Let's pray.